0: Live with our 228th episode of Absolute AppSec, I'm Ken Johnson, at CKTricky on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Seth Law, at Seth Law on Twitter. Seth, say hi. Or sorry, X now. Seth, say hi.
1: (laughs) Hey, everyone. Apparently, we've rolled uh, Elon Musk back, so uh, there you go. Thanks to Ken. Um, Welcome to another episode. Excited to have the Chime team with us, uh, David and Paul. We'll do introductions shortly with them to talk about Monocle and their experience over there because it it is very relevant to what we're seeing in the industry and what we run into. So, um, on top of that, just from an announcements perspective, uh, KernelCon for next year, that's going to be the next place that you're going to be able to do or take practical secure code review. Uh, You will see the new... AI portions of that. Uh, Ken and I are working behind the scenes to include some of the LLM and some of the other things that we've been doing in our own practices for code reviews and using those AI elements. So if you're going to be at KernelCon or you're looking for an opportunity to take practical secure code review, that's going to be your next chance. As of right now, there might be something else that pops up. we got a couple other CFPs or CFTs that we've entered into, Um and otherwise we will be at CactusCon. Um, I think KernelCon's in April, April. CactusCon is in February. Uh, we, um, we they, don't, they don't have training, but we will be there if you'd like to see us in person. Um, outside of that, uh, Ken, I don't think I have anything else. I, I know we've been excited to get you know the, the Chime team on, uh, David and Paul. So you know, Ken, is there anything else you wanna announce before you do introductions?
0: Um, I guess the only thing I'll remind people is last week, I had kind of teased out that we are now in open beta at Dry Run, so you can go to app.dryrun.security if you'd like to try it out, um, and we'll activate your account after we do a little betting, but it's pretty quick. Beyond that, no, I am really excited. I Ever since I saw the series, and we'll get into it, um, from chime uh you know engineers on the plat- the monocle platform i was fascinated to to hear more um lots of questions uh yeah i honestly i it was it was more one of those things where you you look at it and you say okay this is this is where we should be going um as an industry i really liked the approach loved the approach and really wanted to have uh paul and Dave- david on uh but we'll we'll get into that in a second um, uh, yeah, Seth. I think that's it for me. Any other, you know, anything else that you need to go through um, before nope. we just roll into it?
1: Nope let's Let's cool. go ahead and jump into it. Um, right. Uh, so, I, you know, and I think, I, you know, Ken, do you want to run through the introductions there, um, or how do you want to do this? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Talk so, to so,
0: uh, go ahead. Yeah, for sure. No. Okay. So. Um I'll just start with uh introductions and and I, I have to be honest with you you know um David I was able to find a little bit of information on on your background but uh Paul it was a, l- a little bit harder but so David it seems like David Treo it seems like your um your background's more in um uh engineering actually I, you know seem the pa- Paul uh uh I'm going to say I'm going to try and say this right Paul Kal- Kalinowitz, is that is that
2: Yeah. Very good.
0: Okay. All right. I want to make sure we get that right. Paul, it seemed like your background was more security, but David, it seemed like your background was a little bit more um, on the engineering side of things. So uh, I could be completely off here, but um, David, I'll hand it over to you to kind of talk a little bit about your background and and, uh, give some more specifics there.
3: Sure thing. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I used to be on a growth engineering team and you know, in your free time, you build some tools that make people more productive. And I switched over to a developer experience team. And then that's when we built uh, a version of Monocle at my previous company that uh, even though we weren't on the security team, the security team was our biggest sponsor. So uh, that's how I got started in this area. And it's pretty fun to build for internal teams because everybody has strong opinions about what they want. And, uh, you get that, uh, product development feedback loop right there in Slack, which is just very satisfying for me at least.
0: I'm sure. And I'm sure there's lots of lessons that you've learned about working with security folks. And I'm, I'm certain we'll, we'll get into that. There are of course, like a lot of considerations, um, when you're building for security, but especially a, a product uh, kind of focus um, uh, approach to security, which is, is well, again, we'll, we'll get into that. But Paul, I did want to just real quick, because, uh, so when I looked you up, it's actually, I, I say that there, there's not a lot, no, there is actually a lot of technical um, sort of things that I found about you, but uh, in terms of your career path, that was actually uh, harder to find. So you have, you've had a lot of uh, input on different forums, uh, you, you you seem to have a, like, I think I went back as far as I could be wrong here, but maybe even 13 years of pretty serious technical uh, contributions I could find at least online. Um, but again, uh, if you could like maybe uh, elaborate on your kind of career path uh, to this point.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. I've had a pretty low profile online generally for a while now. But yeah, I started off my career working for the government doing information assurance. So like, Know, in, you know, doing security reviews or different projects that were going on, but kind of like hands off from the actual technical work that I had been doing, you know, when I was in college. And after a while for that, got, you know, an itch to get back into the actual more hands-on stuff. You know, as far as hands-on as you can be like in software where everything's like non-physical and that. So went back to the private sector, you know, moved to the Midwest, uh, I was working at PayPal for a while. And then, you know, after several years working there, I moved over to Qime, uh both there and here, you know, on uh, information security teams. And, you know, at Chime, we're focused, uh, our team is focused on building out uh, tooling to support uh, information security things for, you know, internal use, like Monocle is a great example of that.
0: Interesting. Yeah, that's a, yeah, yeah that kind of, that, that makes a lot of sense and lines up with what I could find online. It Yeah, I mean, it seems like, um the two of you uh, definitely have like deep roots in understanding De- David from your side, understanding sort of like how to build for um, for it seems like to me anyways, for for enjoyment, honestly, this seemed like something that was actually uh, somewhat fun to use uh, for developers. And then, Paul, yeah, it seems like you have uh, very deep roots in the in the technical space and Monocle for sure. Um, demonstrates deep technical uh, prowess. And so I think maybe Seth, I don't know where you want to start here, but probably just talking about what is Monocle would make the most sense for those that are unfamiliar with the platform. And then we can kind of roll from there.
1: Yeah. um, And I'll post the first link here because that's a good, you know, kind of introduction to it um, for those that haven't read about Monocle yet. Um, I know, and I'll let uh, David and Paul speak to it, right? Like, um, my, my initial takeaway here, and, and one of the things that I loved was just the approach from a product security perspective. Um, and I think it's in the first, you know, the first couple paragraphs in that article, the security philosophy about how uh, security is promoting this positive culture and, you know, the... the the. Uh, the development of Monocle backs up like a security philosophy that is, hey, you know, we're a partner with the development. We're trying to get out of the way. We're trying to enable the development organization to actually do security things and to do it quickly and efficiently. So, I, yeah, I mean, may, maybe let's let's start there, right? Like, uh, David, you talked about like developing something similar to Monocle at a previous organization or in a previous life. Um, how did that pitch go? How did that start at Chime? And then, you know, where did it go from there? So we'll start there, David.
3: Yeah, so at least at Chime, we were very lucky because uh, our sponsor, our biggest sponsor for the project at the previous company, Jeff Trudeau, was or joined Chime as the chief security officer. And then uh, some of his hires, We're like, you know, we just can't really get our stuff done without having a tool like this. So, you know, how about we just build it again? Um, Mm -hmm. And so then, of course, that's pretty easy for us to get started because we've already got, uh, you know, buy-in from chief security officer. So that's basically how it started here at Chime. And I would say the prototyping process, you know, Depending on how good you are at uh, cutting down your requirements and what you're building, that can actually be pretty quick um, and pretty fun as well. So I basically joined and started prototyping almost immediately and you know showed people things and went from there. Um, so uh,
1: along those lines, what were your first security requirements, right? Like, I mean, we always kind of start start basic with, okay, this is what we're trying to accomplish. I mean, you know, I know coming into it from kind of a third-party consulting perspective, when I step into organizations, this is what they struggle with is, hey, we want the end goal. Like you have Monocle up and running and you have it monitoring all these code bases and all the developers ch- are chimed in. But when you step into Chime or step into an organization where that doesn't exist, I mean, what was the initial vision? What was the first requirement that yeah. you had?
3: Yeah, I would say that the the beginning things that you build are things that help with audits. So okay. the, the types of checks that we add are things like, do you have at least one branch protection um, rule set up, basically, that you've got one review at least one code review and uh, you know, it's not the person who wrote the PR. Um, Mm -hmm. And then uh, that alone can save a lot of time because you can imagine in these audits, they're essentially, they sample, say hundred repos, and then you've got to go click through the admin settings for all of those repos to know, does it have things set up correctly? So, I think I mentioned this in the article, but depending on how many audits you're doing, you know, if you're planning to IPO someday, then you've got more audits to do. um, Then that could be like, potentially 2000 hours of engineering time, somebody who actually knows how to click through GitHub in the right way, uh, to check on all those things. So, you know, that's basically a full time engineer.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I, I mean, mean, it makes sense. Yeah, go ahead,
0: Ken. Sorry. Well, I was going to say that resonates with me. That, so, because I don't think I've explained too much of my background to you two. I, I, so I left my job at GitHub, but I was there for, uh, so I left there about nine months ago, but I was there for almost six years and um, I went through these pains, right? So that's why when I saw Monocle, I was like, oh yes, exactly. So on the auditing note, and I tell people this all the time, and I've said it on the podcast a bunch, one of the biggest pain points that we had was that people would come in these auditors would come in and they'd say okay well you say that you do uh for example you do without giving away too much you do security reviews of things that fall within a certain criteria and you say that um those reviews have you know some process that handles follow-up uh cool i'm going to take a random sample from your uh released roadmap. And then I'm going to say, okay, well, here's the features that you mentioned here. So those become random throughout the year. They'll look at the feature log and see like what, what we actually ship. They'll pick out those features. And then from there becomes finding random samplings of all doing all the things that we said that we are supposed to do against those random, even further randomized examples of, you know, uh, different features that we released. And it becomes this just insanely difficult to wrangle process that that we had an entire team dedicated to wrangling. And then they pulled in all these different folks. And then in terms of automation, you know, it was kind of like trying to really, because we were GitHub and we operated on GitHub. So it's searching literally GitHub for the answers to these things. And that just takes an incredible amount of time. So you have that one pain point that this solves. That's a massive pain point, which is the tracking up. Because, you know, one of the the blog posts talks about how you um, if someone accepts a risk because you you do this thing of warning more, more warning and, and more like hey here's here's some potential risks and here's some potential follow-ups you you know you could take but if people do have the option of accepting those risks and then tickets can be created once those risks are accept, accepted so immediately you have like that auditing paperwork log and stream kind of handle so that's the one big thing that i that i took away from that like yes that really helps the other being that whole thing of like um back to the warnings is like we we as an industry are talking a lot about right now getting off the hamster wheel i've seen so many headlines from different newsletters i follow and different tweet you know tweets with blogs and videos and everything where they they talk about this and um that hamster wheel is the scan and fix approach, right? Like, like you can't ship software unless it's been scanned and then we had some whatever like findings come out of it of whatever criticality and then like those have to be resolved. That's not the approach that you took. It did seem like you're warning on, you know, really high risk uh vulnerabilities or having, you know, be, being... um I don't know if you blocked. Actually, that's a question. I don't know if you blocked on those high or if it was still just a warning, but it seemed like that was... like no only if it's really really risky do we take more significant action
3: yeah so uh just briefly like the first bunch of stuff we built was basically just reading from github and then displaying information um and then our like that that's like the first big part of the project and the second big part of the project is um monitoring pull requests that like at the moment they're being merged, are they risky, so to speak? For example, like they didn't have the pull request approval, and nobody looked at it. One single engineer is deciding to merge, um and then we see that, and we create a Jira ticket to track, and and someone will go follow up on that and look to make sure that the code looks fine, and you know, hey, engineer, next time get a code review, please, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah, so in general, our security leadership has been extremely supportive of looking at just the most important things because the status quo before you start any work is just that nothing is getting looked at, right? I mean, just naively, if you have no security program, right, nothing's getting looked at. So uh, it I would say it makes a ton of sense just to start with, Criticals and highs, and not overwhelm engineers, not overwhelm ourselves. And then, if you're doing great on those, then you can start looking at the other ones. But of course, probably you actually have even more important stuff to look at, and you probably don't want to invest in mediums and lows unless they're really easy, like merging dependable pull requests for those.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I, I like that it's not just the the pull request code changing either. I like that your 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 platform's. So that's one part of it, and that's a super critical part of it—not just for actual security, but f- especially for change control. So from an actual security perspective and an auditing pers- auditing perspective, that's amazing. The other thing that I think really uh, was. What really uh, kind of just became this this neat idea of, uh, was was when, when I saw it was the idea of pulling in all of these different um, attributes. So you're looking at things like um, like Docker images and, and and you know are you t- keeping up with depe- Dependabot or you know your dependencies? I, I assume it's Dependabot. I, I'm I'm actually just saying yeah, that. We,
3: yeah, Dependabot, because thankfully we get to use GitHub.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't want to just put it out there and be, be wrong, but it, it's like Docker and and Dependabot and things like your actual configuration, like your branch protection rules. It's a whole bunch of other factors, and I'm curious where the idea um, to, to to do that, or you know, sort of how that came about. Because um, yeah, I huge fan of that. I think there's a lot more risk than just the code that's changing.
3: Yeah, I I think some of that comes from so you've you've got you start off maybe with like a repository view and then you realize that in the course of your day-to-day security work, you need to see like, oh, what are all the images we're using? And so then you need like a reverse view where you can see the individual facts mapped back to the repositories. So that that view becomes pretty helpful and useful for security engineers and appsec people on a, on a Let's say daily basis, maybe depending on what their work is and and what whether their initiative is tracked in Monocle or not.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So, yeah, yeah,
1: I, yeah, I mean it, it. It it's it's cool how it like you know you're looking at the attributes, but you like followed up with the you know the the risky pull requests after. But it it seems like it started from a general hygiene perspective. Um, And I did, you know, I did, like we've talked a lot with David, I did want to ask Paul specifically, like what his experience was, how he got involved with the project, um, and then, you know, then we'll go from there.
2: Yeah, so I came on with a project to help uh, David out, build out, you know, some of the more advanced capabilities, right? I was like, like David said, started out like, oh, you just look at GitHub, get some information, present it more usefully, Uh, some of the features we have now, like involve correlating data from a lot of different data sources and like having like a more complex, like rule that you're looking for. Okay. Uh, so like, yeah, for example, uh, like there's a lot of interest around like the rollout of some of the new security capabilities our team is developing and monocle is like a pretty good way of trying to track that rollout. So you can see, like we have this new feature, like or how we authenticate services with each other. Uh, how many services have adopted that or are enforcing that? That's mm-hmm. something we can measure in Monocle and then like eventually add that to their score so we can you know, measure over time, You know, start off like almost everything's failing because it's brand new. And then as we migrate things, we can see the progress we're making uh, across all our services and also see if anything backslides, like the numbers will shift the other way. But checks like that, like it's more complex than just, you know, querying GitHub for some information. We're digging into like how we're deploying services, like, you know, sometimes, you know, how their CI is set up, uh, what's happening, like, you know, in the CD environment and like bringing all that information together, to figure out, okay, this service you know is configured to enforce this thing when it's deployed. Okay. And if it's not like we can say like, oh, like unique, uh, also give more actionable information to the developers saying not just like, oh, you need to do this, like new It's Here's where you're at in the process of onboarding. Here's the next steps to work on.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, it feels like, you know, you, you started with this high level of, okay, you know, we query GitHub. We're able to check like a couple of things about pull requests. But now you're starting to dig deeper into the code specifically on, hey, oh, it looks like we've got like a new authorization feature, right? And and this is one of the, you know, the keys to improving a program just generally is you start, you know, you start small, start with the easy wins, right? Like, yes, are, is everything onboarded to a, you know, static analyzer or it's doing, it's running depend bot. You're accepting those requests, all that kind of stuff that the general housekeeping. But the second that we start to introduce those more advanced features, these sorts of dashboards and tools become very specific to an organization, right? So it would be hard to take Monocle and go like, you know, for for me talking to a third party, right? Like I can't tell them, hey, go use Monocle on your code base because the features that they've written into their code aren't necessarily going to line up with what Mono or what Chime has done. Correct?
2: Yeah, exactly. And like we've had some discussions internally about, you know, trying to open source Monocle and like, that'd be like a neat thing to be able to do. But then we look at the code and realize there's a lot of assumptions baked into his code base about how we do things at Chime. And it's not Uh just things like, oh, we use GitHub rather than GitLab. Oh, we use, you know, this CI vendor instead of that CI vendor. It's also issues of like, here's specifically how we deploy things into our production environment. And there's like, this automation and tooling that we have in front of it like you don't have developers just like manually configuring things there's you know there's yaml files and those get processed by something and then that gets processed by something and that does like the cd deployment Mm -hmm. and some you know and monocle is digging through those configuration files like that's not going to apply to anybody but us because nobody else like even if they're using the same third-party tools they're not going to have exactly the same infrastructure or our rollout of the service-to-service authentication uh, feature that's a very time-specific feature and a check for that capability is meaningless to anybody else because they're not implementing you know service authentication and authorization that way
1: yeah yep
2: so if you're gonna like try to open source that you've got to figure out how to get all the stuff that everybody can use in one place and then extract all the stuff that is going to be organization specific or need to be heavily configured, put that somewhere else and plug it in and configure it. And you know that's not an easy thing to tackle.
1: Unfortunately, no, no not at all. Right. Like, I mean, the, the low hanging fruit, it feels like there's quite a few things that'll do, you know, that'll at least, you know, monitor GitHub repositories or, you know, get repositories for a specific, um, Settings and you know that again that, that's a good place to start. But this is why this is why any organization needs product security. Right, like they've got to have some sort of a at least a person that's looking at this and trying to automate these these approaches. Um, otherwise, it's not going to get to that level, right? Like we always talked about this, you know, five six years ago with Netflix and their paved path idea, right? Like it worked very well for them. Internally, they had a bunch of tools, um, but it's so hard to take that and push it to another organization without having the knowledge, Paul, that you're specifically speaking to um, because it's every environment is different. I mean, we see that from a testing perspective. We see that from an AppSec, a cloud security, DevOps, a GitOps perspective. All of these different components just won't line up um so you've got to have some sort of context somebody to actually glue that context together um and i i don't know like you know paul like specifically being in those different code bases where would you recommend that someone start you know if they're coming into an organization and trying to learn that
2: yeah like i think kind of like what david was saying like you start with the simple things and then you can build up from there Mm -hmm. like once you build you know something that can like oh, you have like this setting uh, across all your GitHub repositories the way you want. Like you'll, you know, once you have that tooling in place, then having more sophisticated checks can often be just a matter of, oh, if we integrate this other data source, then we'll be able to do something. Or, oh, if we dig like a little bit deeper into this uh, resource that we're already looking at, like we might be able to figure out, uh, you know, some extra things that we're interested in. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're trying to like jump straight to like, the hard stuff, like you're going to, it's going to take a while to get there. And, you know, a lot of these features like that I've been talking about, like, have been, like, have taken a while to get working because, you know, you have, you know, every organization is different. They all have their own, uh, ways of doing things. And then you realize that even the way we do things, there's actually a lot of variation within that, that a tool that's going across all the repositories and all the services is going to run into and have to deal with.
3: To expand a bit on that, if you ask yourself what is in production or is this in production, this service, this thing, maybe even this, does this get deployed to an S3 bucket, something like that. um, That's a pretty hard question um, to answer. You know, maybe that means you're integrating with your deployment system. and, And Paul's done a ton of work in this area and I'm really thankful for his help. You know, you're integrating with your deployment system. Maybe we haven't done this, but maybe you're even like looking at what IAM roles, everything has access to, and like tying that back to the repository to figure out if it's doing something, right? So yeah. there's a lot there.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, there, there's so many ways to take it, right? Um, it, I I you know and I think where Ken and I got excited was actually seeing the you know the results the dashboard results that you guys were pushing back that you were using things like Slack and you know GitHub pull requests and you know just notification right the gamification of it and then also like allowing developers to compete against one another right you know they always want to be better than the other team um so a- along those lines you know how has developer uptake and response been? i mean i know you speak to a little bit in the article but you know how did that start how did it grow you know what was your experience there
3: oh uh, yeah sure i can talk about that so when you first join a company you maybe you're used to maybe a more approval based company and you think like okay i need to like ask for is it okay for me to do this? Can I build this integration, this channel? Can I uh, ping people? Can I do this and that? And uh, I think when you're on the security team, you need to answer your own question and say basically, yes, uh, I can ping everybody. (laughs) Um, You know, as long as I'm respectful with it and and not overwhelming them and and things like that. So uh, that was... I think it's a very freeing moment when you do answer yourself, yes, let's do it. And, you know, you start off small and the influence of your tooling grows over time. And, you know, you dial back your alerts, you turn them back up, you see how people feel and, you know, you ask them how they're feeling. Uh, Are you feeling overwhelmed or not? Um, and, so are you doing and then that? You just um, land somewhere that works well. Yeah.
0: Are, when you when you say are, you're asking them? Are, are is this like uh, you know literally going DMing them on Slack or, or is this part of the feedback that you're capturing through the tool? Uh,
3: so you certainly could build some kind of a feedback form. Um, in our case, we didn't because people are decently good at telling either our managers or us on Slack threads saying like, Hey, this is really pinging me a lot. Um, Also when you uh, set up your tool to send a particular message, you can um, add a phrase into the searches in Slack, and then you'll see whenever your bot is sending a message to a channel. And that's super helpful because then you can just watch those things and you know, maybe after an hour or two has passed, you go look at all your notifications because they all show up as red little thingamajigs. And you can see people's maybe emoji reactions like, you know, thanks or, or you know, maybe you get, worst case, maybe you get like a spam emoji reaction and then you <laughs> can like ask them like, hey, how can we make this better, right?
0: I like it. That's that's an interesting... uh uh yeah, I mean it makes sense because you've got access to uh yeah I'm I'm saying this because I I I think about this all the time is like what's the what's the as someone who builds a product, like what's the right way, you know, what's 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 an approach that other people use to get that kind of feedback. And that's that is the benefit of yeah, having everybody sort of being in that Slack instance and seeing the feedback um pushed to that Slack workspace and then being able to track it. That's that's pretty neat. Um one other question I had that's like a big one in my mind is I know you all uh, have like a, a badge that you show within the repo to kind of surface its its health, which does seem to be, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, tied to risk. And I guess, you know, the one thing I was trying to understand is in this scenario, how, what is your sort of risk matrix that you're using or, you know, um, is it different uh, risk scoring per category of thing you're doing analysis on and then you use an aggregate or yeah just what was your sort of a thought and approach with uh with surfacing and calculating risk
2: yeah that's a great question and that's something that we you know wrestled with a lot as we've developed monocle so the the badges are based on what we call the security score which is like a roll-up of like here's these different security checks we do like each one has like a point value assigned to it based on like how important that is that the repo is meeting that requirement or not. And then we would like sum them up, like figure out the percentage and say, like, if you're at like this percent or above, you get an A, this percent or above you get a B and so on. So like, as a first cut, like you can kind of like prioritize, like we're interested in there not being any critical or high vulnerabilities more so than maybe, we're interested in like some hardening feature of the Docker images. Like we still care about it, but like we're gonna penalize one more than the other. Uh, um, I see. That's like, you know, kind of like the base level. And then you start thinking about, you know, where it gets tricky. Uh, one of the things Monocle looks at is uh, sources of vulnerability information about applications. So like vulnerable third-party dependencies, that may or may not have a fix available through the pentabot or uh, issues that our code scanning tools have flagged, uh, and things like that, and trying to figure out how to roll that information up into a score, because you know your goal is oh I don't want any critical or high vulnerabilities. Okay, right. so so do we penalize if a repo has one critical that's unfixed? Is that better or worse than this other repo that has two highs? What about three highs what about there's you know like yeah you don't want yeah you can't say like oh every critical word gonna dock you so much because then oh well eventually you're getting into a negative score and that just doesn't even make a whole lot of sense percentage wise but if you say oh you need to fix everything before we'll bump your score up then you know the downside of gamification then is the developer's gonna say like I'm looking at like this huge list of stuff I have to do before I can get any improved my score. Why am I going to bother for That's like definitely not something we want to incentivize, uh, the developers to think that way. So it's hard to figure out like how to adapt, like, you know, just the amount of vulnerabilities you have and factor that into a score in a way that's also like going to be predictable. And then another thing like, building beyond on top of that which like, is something we're planning in the future is adapting that kind of risk information based on the overall risk posture of the ind- individual service so for example a service that's handling sensitive data uh, we might you know want to adjust the weightings of things differently from something that doesn't handle sensitive data or something that is external facing versus something that's only used internally or only used by employees and like have that kind of risk context available where you could say, okay, this, this vulnerability in a third party dependency in the abstract is a high, but this is a, like a mission critical service at the edge of our network. We're going to prioritize that, you know, maybe at a critical level, whereas this critical vulnerability in some, you know, back-end service that's five layers deep in our network, and that isn't even reachable from, you know, customer traffic. Maybe we're not going to treat that as a critical because it'd be so much harder to exploit, and the impact is impact in our environment is lower than it is just like in the abstract considered by itself. Yeah, those are like also like those are difficult to figure out. Like we're thinking through how we want to tackle those now.
0: Yeah, yeah, that was actually like something that, um, yeah, because. So you're running this on all services too. So uh are there any services you okay, so here's why I'm I'm saying this because you said um you said sensitive services, right? That's that right there is is huge to me because not all services in your service catalog are created equal. And obviously your concerns are different and what you're accepting of are very different. So to 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 make this a, a short question, first question is do you run this on all repos or are there certain um Repos, and, uh, which equate as presumably exactly like a one-to-one mapping to a service, I assume. I mean, you might have mono repos or something like that, but I'm guessing a repo is a service. Are there any services you don't run this on, and if so, what would be the reason?
2: Yeah, we basically run it on all of our repos. Like we we skip over the things that are like archive repos that aren't under development, obviously. But yeah, we'll score everything, but then. The main presentations we provide you know, in monocle is servicing just the things that are running in production we give the option to look at everything that also you know includes stuff that's like you know a documentation repository or things that are like our services where they're not deployed yet or you know stuff like that so like the scores look a lot worse there because like you know a documentation repository is not going to have dependabot enabled for example it doesn't really make sense yeah and like right. i don't you know we mostly just focus on the things that are only focused on uh, services that are getting deployed into production.
0: We So when I was at GitHub, our tool, I, I forget how many, I think we followed the same amount of lines of code. Um, like there for, uh, for the analysis engine, so when you push a code to a repo in GitHub and it shows you like what the composition of the language is, there's a minimum set of criteria for like even that function running to show what kind of code is in, in a repo. And we, on the security side, mimicked that same, like those same uh, little requirements to uh, to say, this repo has been put online, but doesn't have uh, these controls, right? Because um, it, it met the minimum for it being considered like a functional repo. Uh, and you know, I don't know, I don't remember if it also had like, not just lines of code but like a package file or something like that. But um are you doing something similar because i assume it has to be sort of an automated approach because i assume again that people are probably putting on repos you know or putting up repos rather um as needed without too much uh friction there to to get one running and if and if that's the case then obviously you need to be aware that that has to be brought into the the sort of chime fold or excuse me monocle fold.
2: Yeah, like i i think we do something along the lines of what you're thinking where we automate the detection of what is getting deployed to production so one of the things that monocle crawls is you know the repositories that have our various you know continuous deployment uh, setups for the production environment so it can figure out you know, uh. you know here's is like here's the 30 set of ser- set of 30 or whatever services that are making it to production and then linking those to figure out okay these services are defined in these repositories. So these repositories are production and so I need to scan them. And then, you know, of course, a challenge is figuring out all the different ways you deploy things to production. Uh, So one example we've got is like, you know, you have like, you know, your main services get in production this way and you have tooling around that. Oh, but we also have these like ML models that are running in like Mm -hmm. deployed in a completely different way. And they, their CD is defined like over here and say, okay, I'll, Add support for that. Oh well, well the real time models are actually defined over <laughs> there.
1: And that fact, was hey, I I, such yeah, a challenge. oh,
2: also there's yeah. lambdas that get deployed now too. Yeah. Like, oh well, yeah. so you're
0: and definitely not in the same way.
2: Yeah, and it's and hopefully there's maybe only one way they're deploying lambdas, but maybe not. Yeah.
1: Who knows? That was Through such console, a challenge
0: yeah. for us. I. I, I... It's so many different ways that things get. Yeah, sorry, Seth.
1: No, it's, and it's not just you. It's not just, you know, GitHub or Chime, right? Like everyone struggles with it. It's the idea of service app inventory, right? Like just knowing what's actually in production, cloud inventory as well, right? Like, okay, yeah, you think everything's deployed to AWS and then realize that some developers went out and like, Spun up a GCP instance or an Azure instance or DigitalOcean, and right, like you know, you, there's just so many different problems that you run into um, as far as just getting getting to know what your environment and what the context is that you look like. Not to mention the the risk prioritization that you're talking about, Paul. Right, like you know, what is it? How risky is it? Should we really be looking at it? So having the having some sort of a a key that you're using to determine what it is. Um is fairly important, right? Um, anyway, uh, so like what was the approach that you took? You, did you just, um, in that case, uh, you know, you started with, a, you know, one set of, hey, we're pushing everything out via this one mechanism and just started to add more to the fold or were the developers actually giving you that information?
2: Yeah, it's pretty much starting with the the obvious ones, like the, your mainline services that, you know, are running in your Kubernetes clusters and then seeing, you know, think, looking set, set, sit, sitting back and thinking, where are our gaps? Like, oh, we we have these, you know, the ML models that, you know, at the time we weren't scanning, but they are running in production and handling production data. So let's learn about how those are getting deployed and cover those as well. And kind of like going down the line of things where, you know, one, one trick I've used is just look at the list of what monocle is saying is in production and looking at it. was there anything that i know for sure is in production but it isn't captured here why is that and then mm-hmm. that, that's served as a help highlight oh here's things that you know are deployed in some other way or there's some quirk about how they're deployed where they're tripping up the automation we have built out and you know we need to fix a bug or two
1: yeah well what was the pressure like like i mean you i know david we talked about the cso that was you know Hey, brought you over to build, you know, to help build out Monocle. Um, And I blanked on his name all of a sudden. So sorry about that. Jeff Trudeau. Yeah. There you go. Jeff Trudeau. Yeah. I was going to say Jason something. I knew it started with a J. Anyway. So as he brought you over though, to do this, what was the expectation as far as like, um, Hey, we're going to get all this in on board. Like the reason I ask this is I deal with a lot of organizations and I deal a lot with a lot of executives and that's always their complaint. They're like, Oh, well we need to be, a hundred percent like, um, secure across the board. And we're going to start with this one little thing, but then they don't realize how long that's going to take. Right. So what, what, what did that look like from an executive perspective? Um,
3: well, I guess our CSO is really cool. So he didn't, I wouldn't say that he pressured us super hard on exactly how that would look.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: Um, uh, so I'll just describe kind of how the scores evolved. Um, you know, we, we have some simple ways in the beginning, some simple ways to determine, do we think this is in production? Because rail services are the biggest uh, population at chime to start with. And then we come up with, you know, let's say to start, maybe we had probably six score factors and uh we just target, we, we came up with, hey, let's just have a, a score of 80% or better for production repos. Um, let's try and get everyone that, to that point. And then, so each score factor has, it's either passing, we, we just try to keep it simple. So it's either passing or failing. It has a point weight. If it's passing, it gets the full weight. If it's failing, it gets zero. So then, we uh, <clears throat> So then as time passes and everybody's passing those, let's say, first six score factors, then you add a new one and maybe you reduce the point value of, of, of a past one that everyone's already doing well. And uh, you've got your, like, the homepage of your tool showing you how many people are at in each uh, grade bucket or how many repositories are in each grade bucket, and then you can kind of see over time. Okay. Like everybody's, uh, security baseline is just going up over time. And, and then the executives that, that kind of dashboard or just those like top line numbers, how many B's and above do we have, uh, that's getting shared with the engineering leaders and something, a, a big thing that we've been able to do recently, is we've got another team that's tracking ownership. So they've built a whole app like this is a service. It's owned by this EM, this engineer, and it's in this group and etc. cetera. Um, that's been super helpful for us because as you get bigger, you've got a lot of repos. And well, how do I know how my repos are doing? So you need that ownership to be able to uh, look at your repos. And then... Our management needs to be able to see, okay, which group, which could be a bunch of teams, um, which group needs more security investment, and which, you know, uh, VPs do we need to start pinging and asking them, hey, can you ask your teams to do a little bit better on this, right? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the evolution. That's you know, you wouldn't start with that, but yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's always that, like you know, there's we we. I always talk with people about the you know um top down or yeah top down or bottom up approaches right and you kind of have to attack it both ways right so you've got to give the executive some sort of dashboard something that they can use to see like oh how does how do these different VPs how do they compare how do those groups compare who's actually ahead, who's behind, to give a little pressure from the top. But from the bottom, you don't want it all coming from the top because the developers are going to resent that. So having the, the buttons and the badges, the other things that you are actually showing at that they understand is fairly important, right? Like, hey, there's these six things. You can go fix that.
3: Yeah. So like for every new control or thing that you're trying to track, you kind of go through a little bit of a decision diagram Um, can we just fix it preventatively for everybody? You know, that's the ideal case. And maybe can you even ask another team to build that for you? Like developer experience team, for example, like if we've got a service generator that someone's building, can we just have it, have everything configured correctly in the beginning so that we don't have to bother any engineers to fix those basic things. Um, so there's that kind of thought process. And then there's also the thought process of like, how hard is this to fix? Um, If something is really hard for us to automate and fix preventatively, then, but it takes an engineer, you know, two minutes to go in and and fix that thing. Like let's say branch protection. Um, Then, you know, then we want to, prefer to ask a human to fix it than to try to spend a lot of our time automating something like that.
0: Makes total sense. It also makes sense to sort of first let the product get good, you know, like have good before you start having execs kind of, uh, pinged or you know anybody sort of uh brought into the fold from from the the top down scenario that that seth was was talking about just like allowing that thing to breathe to evolve to get feedback to tune it and to tune monocle to a point where you do feel comfortable because like i'd imagine if it were me i would not feel good day one being like okay here's the thing i put out here all right now we're just going to have everybody report on how well they're doing on this thing and if they're not doing well and not uh mitigating things like you know, day one, uh, we're going to report on that um, to to the execs. Maybe you took a different or feel, feel a different way. But for me, that's part of uh, that's like, I guess, just product one on one, just building that. Yeah. To feel to feel
2: comfortable
3: so, first. So if you're adding a new score factor, something you're grading people on, it doesn't have to have any points to start with. It could start with zero points. Um, or you could add a new score factor security score v 2 and then add all the new stuff in there and then once uh you're ready then everyone moves to that one um i would probably prefer um adding a new score factor that's worth zero points because it's like it's just a little bit more incremental there's no like day of the launch thing um maybe yeah. paul wants to add to that
2: yeah was just something like we've We've tried both approaches now. And I think the start with a zero weight score factor is a lot smoother to integrate uh, than having like a new type of score that's like the next version and then switching that over to be the old one. Uh, you do like one big advantage of starting this, like being able to score something before it's ready is that then you can like put some effort into getting that fixed across you know your different repositories before you start making it count for the score because mm-hmm. developers don't like being blindsided by oh i my repository wasn't an a and now it's a c why that no because like we introduced this new thing that we hadn't really communicated very clearly with you and it's worth a lot because it's important like you know you get a lot of feedback when something like that happens but i you started you. Next, yeah <laughs> but started at zero and then you say like okay like we're Doing pretty badly on this overall because it's brand new, nobody's thought about this yet. We can like then engage with developers and let them know, like, hey, we're working on this, like, we'll help you out, like how to, you know, fix this for your repositories or maybe do some kind of automation to do it across the board for a lot of them. Get that up to like around where we want to be, or at least close, and then have it start counting. So then you're starting off at a point where most people are already in a good state once it's like counting for real. And Mm -hmm. then it's not nearly as you know, as problematic for people when scores start to dip a bit because, like, you know, there's been backsliding or something new or something like that comes up.
0: Okay, I mean that. Yeah, that, that's that's a really intelligent approach. Um, yeah, you give people time to sort of, sort of respond. You also get to see how it's performing. You know, through like you said, going into Slack and sort of looking at the reactions that that people are uh, providing. Um, as well as just the output of the tools, so you're giving everybody not just them uh the them being the developers but you're also your team the chance to to improve um so that's a really intelligent way and and actually that's a part of but the other question I had was you know the way i see here's i you you all don't probably know this, but I've been um, on a little bit of this like uh personally um security champion programs I'm in a weird spot with because and this is where I think monocle actually really helps out um so i think uh from what not what i think what i've seen with security champion programs are um the intention is that a security champion would be somebody that would extend the the security team's not just knowledge but awareness really of you know, sort of like, hey, we're our team is going to develop this thing, let's let you guys know about it. And here's the things that I know to be potentially uh, pretty security sensitive as the security champion. And I've probably been involved in the uh, architecture um, discussions leading up to how we're going to design or design discussions and had input there. So that's kind of the security champion role. Um, but then what, what I've seen it kind of morph into is they become more of like a canarian, you know, the coal mine kind of and used in that fashion. And obviously, when a team's Shipping a lot of code a day, right? like That's not really ha- just hoping that somebody's going to maybe happen upon a, a real vulnerability, or maybe they get an alert, and maybe that thing is, you know, from from I don't know some tool or whatever. Um, the thing I think Monocle shifts to is taking this sort of uh, it becomes kind of a canary to me. That's what it, it sort of is. Is like say, saying like, hey, um, this is your security that function of 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 what has been. I don't know, intentionally or unintentionally placed upon security champions. Like that's what Monocle can do is like surface those risks and, and help out there. Do you, I guess this is getting to my point. Do you have a formalized security champion program? even if you're not calling it that and are, and how to, and if so, how does the tool play into that role of, of a, of a more security minded person on the developer team or security champion? Very long winded way of asking that question. My apologies.
2: Yeah. I don't think we have any formal program like that. If we do, it's settled enough where it's evaded my notice, but yeah, I, I see how like a tool like monocle can kind of serve a similar role of like being something that's always watching out for like across like everything that you're building and be able to service early, any issues that come up in a way that you know, is hopefully, you know, uh, helpful and informative to developers rather than you know coming across as like you're penalizing them for you know failing to do something it's like a heads up like oh like i noticed your score drop. like here's something you can do to fix it and bring it back up uh, give I them mean, a, yeah, actionable is- information at the time when it's going to be most useful for them and i think that's kind of like what we're trying yeah. to achieve with a lot of the improvements we make the monocle
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And so that was what I was trying to figure out. It's like, do you even need, or do you, have you even felt? And that's sort of like what I was thinking is that, because in my head, I'm questioning, would I even feel the need for, at least in the way that security champions have been used? Would I, would I need that program in, in a scenario like that? And the more I think about it, I'm like, well, not that function of a security champion. It'd be nice to have really, you know, security minded folks on the development team just to be involved in, like I said, like, whether it's threat modeling or design discussions or whatever, that's nice, that's great. But I think the real issue is just like risky stuff that's shipping and services that are not being maintained in a, in a way that, you know, we, we'd ideally like them to be. And that's so, all right. That pretty much answers the question. Monocle's hitting yeah. a lot of the notes that we use security champions for.
2: Yeah, a lot of, I will point like it can't do everything. Like Monocle right. is good at looking for the things that it knows to look at, which are going to be like typically, like, lower-level, well-defined aspects of the program. uh, It's not going to be able to detect, like, oh, you've introduced this major application logic, you know, vulnerability, that, you know, tools like Brakeman or stuff are going to be fine because they don't understand, like, what the application is supposed to be doing. And that, like, I think you still need some, you know, to have people who are security-minded enough to recognize, like, Oh, like we're doing this weird authentication thing that's new, and maybe we need like to make sure that somebody takes a look at this and see if it's okay. Or oh, we're doing we have to do this uh, cryptography related thing now to interact with this third party partner, and can somebody you know make sure that we're handling the keys correctly, or see if there's anything you know dodgy going on with how they want us to integrate?
1: Well, there's I mean, there's limitations
2: for how much tool can do with that.
1: Yeah. Right. Yeah, but But one. Yeah, but one of the things that you're doing is you're taking away that like low hanging fruit, right? Like rather than having your team spend time on hey, we're looking at the repositories and going into these settings and spending these 2,000 hours to actually get this detail, we let Monocle handle that and the developers handle it so we can concentrate on cryptography, on application-specific vulnerabilities, on the really, you know, the high-risk stuff. And that, I mean, I think that's the key to automation. That's the ideal that we want people to get to or we want to get to when we're on these teams is hey, we want to look at something that matters. And it doesn't mean that this low-hanging fruit doesn't matter because if it's not in place, we've still got to go fix it. So we've got to have something there that will take care of that, whether that is bug bounty program, whether that is a monocle and we can automate this out for most of the things, or it's a security champions program. Some some technology, some person, something has to look at those, look at the low-hanging fruit and be able to take care of it.
0: So yeah, in th- your blog, you all said you're like I think started with your one does uh, one security person to sixty engineers, and I'm assuming you're it's more than that now. I, I, you know, I would assume, um, or at least as much as that. So that's a scalability uh, issue. And to Seth's point, it allows you all to focus on the important stuff. where are some maybe your crypto knowledgeable engineers to focus on or whatever. Make whoever might be.
3: Yeah, Um, I I wanted to share a couple things, Um, but before that, um, yeah, I'm not exactly sure uh, what our ratio is right now of security engineers to overall engineers. And we do have a product security review process, so people submit things and we meet with them, talk to them and write up what the threat models are and, and what we want them to do before they're done with the feature. Um, so, uh, re- regarding scaling, I think something that I would have liked to have done sooner, which we haven't gotten to yet, but that's to have an endpoint where people can send data to us. Because I think a lot of these really complex workflows, like that Paul is describing about what's deployed and how does deployment work, those tools have are in some places running just arbitrary code and but they've got all the information available right there. And if they were just to make maybe one API call to Monocle telling us, Hey, my service name is this, my repository name is this, and I'm deployed in production. um, Then we could save ourselves a lot of uh, effort. And also people could onboard new score factors much more easily without us having to be involved in every integration. You know, maybe we still help with like writing the copy and deciding what, what, what it is, but uh, we wouldn't have to write a new API integration with some other tool. Um, so to get your get your minds turning, uh, we recently did an on-site uh, where we did a tabletop exercise where there was an RCE in one of our services, and everybody's talking about you know how are we going to triage this and figure out what how did this uh, spread to other services and, and things like that. Um, So I would highly recommend you do an exercise like that. And as you do that exercise, just think about like how much you might be scrambling between all these different security tools. And, uh, you know, you're not, you're not going to want to build all of that information into a tool, but it's definitely going to give you a really high level view of what information I wish I had about each service and Uh, what do I need to prioritize my services? Because when you look at it from the tabletop exercise perspective, you're able to actually get way more specific about what you need. You know, service X uh, hypothetically had this RCE. And so I need to know X, Y, Z about service X. And you can't, it's really hard to imagine exactly what you need ahead of time until you're actually looking at one specific example and actually looking at one specific thing really helps you de-scope everything you need to build because, oh, well, it's a rail service. Okay. So we're only going to support rail services at first and it's on the edge. So we're only going to try to identify whether something is exposed to the internet and et cetera. So that can really help you save engineering effort as you're building tools like this,
1: I would say. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think that's key, right? Like, it's a good time time to just like recognize. Yeah. We've been going for an hour. I know we could probably dig into more and more specifics, right? Like, so we want to be cognizant of your time for sure. But that is a good place to kind of put a bow on it is to start from where you're at, right? Like, What are the biggest things like what is the you know, doing a tabletop exercise, doing a threat model, doing something that at least points you to that priority that you can start with is, you know, is how you build this program, how you build these tools. Um, So that's a good place to, you know, at least like uh, take a pause for a minute um, before we, we close things out. But being said, right, like we do want to be cognizant of your time, Paul and David, thank you so much for joining us today to talk through it. I think there's a lot of good nuggets that are in there, like uh, from the discussion that we've had today. Um, But along those lines, right, like, uh, is there anything that you want to bring up, you know, to, you know, to put a bow on it outside of what I've said? Um, I guess we'll start, Paul, anything else that you want to add to that?
2: Uh, No, I think that's good advice. Like, look at you know, if you're trying to build out a capability like this yourself, like think about what are the things that are most important to you and like find some small piece of that, get started there and then build up from there.
1: Mm-hmm. Cool. Good. Um, and then, you know, if people do have more questions, you know, is there a place that they could co- go to? I mean, this is, you know, your opportunity to you know, promote whatever you want. Right. Um, but where could people find you or talk to you about this further?
2: Yeah, David, I think you have a a link. The that's a collection like the stuff that we posted publicly about Monocle so far, and like the talks you've done about it.
1: Is that the the one on your site, David?
2: Uh, I believe so. Okay. Here,
0: I'll repost it here in a second. Here, should be this
3: links like talk, uh, presentation slides, a couple of links to the articles we've written. Um, And Mm -hmm. in some of those, we've also got contact information where you can email security at Chime and ask us questions about how we're doing things. And we answer people sometimes, (laughs) Uh,
1: (laughs) (laughs) most of the time. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And I I mean, as always to the listeners, right? Like we have that Slack channel that's available. Ken and I are uh, fairly active on it, right? Um, And there's no expectation, you know, Paul and David that you guys, you know, are on there. I know everybody's got their own lives and their own busy jobs, but there's a quite a few members of the community that do serve at other organizations um, that would be willing to chat about it. Or if you want to con- continue the conversation there, um, please join us. You can find that link on our website, absoluteapsec.com. Um Are you attending any cyber conferences in 2024 at all?
2: Um, right. I don't think yeah. I am currently. Yeah,
3: we do have a couple of chimers that uh, um, have a couple of CFPs out for I think B sides SF or maybe just B sides in general. So those would be something to keep an eye out on, and uh, also definitely check out uh, Overwatch. And I don't think we have a public anything public about it yet, but. Uh, also access service Um, those are a couple of things that probably you'll be interested to learn more about once we get some more information about it online overwatch already has a talk uh, from BSAT, so you could check that out
1: cool perfect
0: i'm i'm looking for and i'll put it into our slack channel for those on our slack
1: sweet
3: those are not written by us specifically but coworkers.
0: yeah
1: yeah yep Yep. Yeah. We know how it goes. Right. So, well, good. Uh, Appreciate again, the time um, and the insight into how to, how to build this sort of a tool. Uh, If others pop up, you know, we'll, we'll send them your direction. Uh, Ken, any last minute thoughts before we close out for today?
0: No, I just want to, again, thank you both. You know, as you know, I was trying so hard to reach out to y'all to, to get you on this podcast. Uh, This was awesome. I could go for another two, three hours, easy asking you questions. Um, So yeah, just thank you so much for your time. Thank you to the listeners as well uh, for theirs. All right. Thanks for
2: having
1: us on. Yep. Thanks Paul. Thanks David. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening and being members of the podcast. Uh, You know, Find us online and we will have a happy holidays, whatever that looks like for all of you. I know that that's this time of year and we will see everyone in a couple of weeks. Thanks again.